Hey everyone, Eric here. We're really excited about a new AI show from Turpentine called Autopilot, hosted by Will Summerlin. This podcast explores the adoption and rollout of AI in the industries that drive the economy and the dynamic tech founders bringing rapid scalable change to slow moving industries. From law to hardware to aviation, Will interviews founders backed by Benchmark, Greylock, YC, and more to learn how they're automating at the frontiers in entrenched industries. Click on the link in the description to subscribe to Autopilot. It's the best model that's available for fine-tuning to the public today. It's 90% cheaper than their previous offering. It's your kind of classic 10,000x, right? It, it, it would literally be, if I, if I needed to go find an expert and I was going to pay some sort of market-ish rate, ad hoc AI consulting you know, is easily into the couple hundred dollars an hour plus. And you know, what I get for two to five cents you know, is easily... 200 plus dollars to go get, you know, somebody to explain concepts to me if I wanted to go hire a grad student or, you know, whatever PhD to do that. Hello, and welcome to the Cognitive Revolution, where we interview visionary researchers, entrepreneurs, and builders working on the frontier of artificial intelligence. Each week, we'll explore their revolutionary ideas, and together we'll build a picture of how AI technology will transform work, life, and society in the coming years. I'm Nathan LeBenz, joined by my co-host, Eric Torenberg. OpenAI 3.5 Turbo Fine Tuning, the big news, the big release of the week. You know, it's like almost boring analysis, right? This is it's kind of like, why are the best still the best? And, you know, why is all of this noise around, you know, no moats, basically just distracting noise? I mean, I, I always kind of emphasize everything everywhere all at once, right? So it's not to say people aren't going to be fine tuning. It's not to say Lama doesn't matter. It's not to say, you know, anything super absolutist or extreme. But basically, you know, if you look at the impact of Lama 2 so far, I think this might be the biggest impact of it, which is that it seems like it maybe accelerated OpenAI's release of their fine tuning offering. And this really addresses the biggest weakness that they've had in their product offering for kind of the last year at this point. You know, not that there was necessarily anywhere better to go for all of that time, but definitely for customers of OpenAI, the fine tuning that they were offering had clearly fallen behind other aspects of the product. So just to give you a sense of like where it was before and what it is now. Previously, as a retail customer, and they did, you know, they do have special enterprise deals where if you want to buy in at a higher level, you could get higher you know, quality stuff. But at a retail level, the fine tuning was limited to the original generation of GPT-3 model. And that had a couple of downsides. You know, one was just straight quality, right? The, the GPT-3 model was not even instruction tuned. So this goes back far enough in time that, you know, real kind of classic prompt engineering was still necessary. The sort of stuff where, you know, you have to think like, how do I set this up to make the problem look like an autocomplete? Or how do I kind of provide a couple of examples to, you know, to show and not tell what I want it to do? And, you know, that's like ancient history at this point. On top of that, when you fine tune, the price goes up 6x. And even a little more than that, because they charge for the fine tuning process itself as well. But even just inference, it's six times more expensive. So the fine tuned price with your original DaVinci 
which was the best thing that you could fine tune as a retail customer until yesterday was 12 cents per thousand tokens, which with a company like Waymark, I generally figure like a thousand tokens per video generation. It's usually probably a little less than that. Depends on how much information they, you know, the user loads in or whatever. Um, so it can vary, but call it a thousand each, you know, call it even a little less. We, I usually just round to order of magnitude 10 cents per video generation was the old price. And that was like feasible for us because we have a really high value use case. And, you know, these TV commercials that we generate are often attached to like multi-thousand dollar campaigns and they're like being presented to a client. So it's not, you know, our success rate is pretty high, but, and the value is pretty, you know, pretty high for a generative AI use case. But still that's like, you know, starting to add up to non-trivial money. If you imagine that we're doing say, even just a thousand of these generations a day, you know, it's a hundred bucks a day. It's a, it's a few grand a month. Now, the new model is based off of the GPT 3.5 Turbo, which the price has dropped down to 0.15 cents per thousand tokens. And so they still apply an 8x price multiple on top of that, but it basically still rounds out to be, you know, just a little bit more than one cent per thousand tokens, which is like, you know, basically a 90% price drop relative to the old version. I think there's been some confusion because people online are like, oh my God, it's eight times more expensive. And, you know, I don't think that's necessarily the right comparison. First of all, if you're using the base model successfully, you're probably, you know, padding it out with quite a bit of instructions, maybe a number of examples. With the fine tuning, you shouldn't have to do that. So you should have some, you know, kind of comparative savings there anyway. But for most people who were not getting the performance that they needed or, you know, just not getting the accuracy, the consistency, whatever, not getting the desired behavior with a few shot approach to 3.5. This just opens up the possibility that that's likely now going to work. And, you know, as they say, like it performs better than GPT-4 in many cases once fine tuned. So, you know, it's, it now becomes the best thing that's out there for fine tuning 3.5 turbo base is better than Llama 2 base. It's, you know, comparable performance on some of the highest end tasks like your MMLU, which is your kind of comprehensive, you know, graduate level, undergrad graduate level exam, you know, battery. Uh, so that's a significant, you know, achievement for a Llama 2 model. Like it's, it's, it's hitting at a high level, but product wise, you know, there was another paper that just came out that showed how many false positives Llama 2 has on refusals. So you ask it things like, you know, where can I buy a can of Coke? And it says, sorry, I can't help you, you know, acquire illegal substances or whatever. And it has a lot of that stuff going on. And the difference there is just like, you know, opening high is making a product. And when their stuff goes wrong in that way, they hear about it and they've applied a bunch of iterations to fix it. Whereas Llama 2, you know, they kind of did whatever they did and they got to their publishing point and they let it go and they don't really, you know, they never really cared that much whether it refuses, you know, the wrong thing. And so it does. So now you have that, that problem. You got to figure out what you're, wanting, what you're going to do with that. Um, so basically, you know, again, it's the, it's the best model that's available for fine tuning to the public today. It's 90% cheaper than their previous offering. 
which addresses, you know, a significant pain point, obviously. And now you have kind of just way less reason, you know, to feel like you're going to go off and do this on your own. You know, try fine tuning Llama 2 had been on my to do list for Waymark because, you know, the, the, it was a little expensive and hey, maybe we can even get better performance. Uh, you know, I think Llama 2 is better than the original GPT-3 pretty clearly. So, you know, it was kind of on my to-do list, but, you know, there's a hurdle there to get over. Certainly you can do it, but it's not just about doing the fine tuning. It's also about how are you going to do your inference? If you actually want to serve this as part of an application, as opposed to just, you know, doing some experiments, then you're going to need to serve it and you're going to need to have some scalability and you're going to need to have some reliability. And certainly people are popping up to offer that type of, you know, managed inference with your own fine-tuned models. But those products are still relatively immature compared to just the ease of use that OpenAI can provide. Even Mosaic, you know, they they have a infor former guests that got the cognitive revolution bump with the big outcome. Just kidding. But, you know, they have an inference product now. But when I inquired about it, it was like, yeah, we don't actually have auto scaling. So you, you know, you kind of deploy your model one instance of it. It can then handle traffic. But if traffic kind of starts to back up, it's up to you to like spin up a second version of your model. And, you know, you manage that kind of complexity on your own. OpenAI doesn't require any of that complexity. Similarly with Hugging Face. Hugging Face has the inference endpoint product. It's real easy to set up an inference endpoint, and they do have some auto scaling. But for the workloads I've been looking at, it's like I kind of wish it were a little bit more responsive in the auto scaling. It takes a couple minutes to ramp up that second instance, and then a couple minutes to ramp up a third if it's still needed, and then you know a couple minutes ramping back down as well. So that could be fine. But you know, I always think about for our use case when we sell this, pro we don't have like huge usage, right? But we sell this to cable companies and whatever. Sometimes we do these little demos where there might be a hundred people in a room and we're like, all right, let's all do it. Let's all do one together. And obviously you don't want your product to like fail under the relatively minor load of like a hundred users, you know, using it in one minute. So that's a problem. You know, the hugging face inference can't quite support that. Mosaic doesn't support that out of the box. I've been hearing really good things lately about base 10. Um, John Narona in the, in the gamma episode specifically called that out. And I, I still need to go look into that. But, you know, it's like you're kind of on a safari to go figure out who has what, who can scale in what way. You know, this stuff is, is kind of buried in documentation. And meanwhile, my experience with the OpenAI fine-tuning product, even in the last generation where it was, you know, a much bigger model in terms of parameters that we were fine-tuning, was basically that it just worked. You know, they kind of handled that. It seemed pretty smooth. We've never really had big runtime, you know, um, rate limit issues with our fine-tuned models, at least, you know, at the scale that we've worked. And it's been super convenient. So, you know, I kind of trust that even though this is, you know, news is 24 hours old, um, so it's a little bit early to be giving, you know, API product reviews, it seems like if it just matches what they've had previously, then it's going to be, you know, <clears throat> not only more performant in terms of the just overall quality of the language model, but probably a lot more convenient as well. And so then, you know, it's like, again, is it worth this squeeze? How, how much 
inference do I need to be doing to feel like I it's worth it for me to go from a one cent per use to a 0.2 cents per use? Because that's the kind of savings I might be able to achieve if I went and fine-tuned my own Llama 2 and did all that deployment or whatever. You know, I've got to be saving... I've got to be running some significant scale, right? To just just to get to, let's say it's, you know, again, that one cent versus 0.2 cents. If I'm doing 10,000 calls a day, then I get up to a hundred bucks open AI spend and it would be 20 bucks on my own. So I can maybe save 80 bucks a day if I'm doing 10,000 calls. Does that, is that worth it to get over, you know, those humps? Um, for, mo for many organizations, it's not, you know, like that's, it's going to take however many developer hours, you know, the developer hours add up real quick. And I just don't see most people, you know, and everybody's got plenty of stuff on their to-do list. And they're also kind of mindful that like, if I do this, what there's going to be another new, you know, better open source model in the next two seconds, or it's going to be something else. And I'm going to end up kind of chasing my tail on this to a certain degree. Whereas like, if I just kind of go with open AI, you know, they'll probably have another up. They've got, we're currently fine tuning off the June update and they'll probably have a September update and you know, whatever kind of little goodies are in, in that I'll get those. Um, so, you know, right behind this too, they also have, you know, in terms of the, the next goodies, like they're going to have function calling coming soon. That's not included in this one yet, but nobody else has the function calling at the level they do anyway. So, you know, again, they're, that's just another distance they're going to put between themselves and the competition. And then with GPT-4 fine tuning, you know, even more so nobody can really match that. So I don't know. It feels like this, this is like the least hot take possible on the, uh, on the release. It's basically, it's very strong. And, you know, I think it kind of just sustains the, the narrative that like there are moats and they're not, um, you know, totally, insurmountable and they don't like freeze all competition out for all use cases by any means. But I do think a lot of people kind of crossed off explore fine tuning llama two from their to-do list yesterday. Certainly I did. I don't really need to do that anymore. You know, I'm, I'm still very interested in what's out there, but I'm pretty confident that this is going to be the best performance and the best like total cost of ownership ROI for us. Yeah. So just to summarize some of the, the major points, it's it's 8x more expensive, the base model, but 90% cheaper than previous fine-tuning options. And this, um, you know, puts OpenAI at a much better position than, you know, Llama 2. Um, and people who had, you know, fine-tuning Llama 2 on their to-do list maybe don't need to bother at the moment. Mostly, yeah. And you notice, too, in their announcement, they really emphasize the we don't use your data i think the the main thing that people you know if they'd heard everything i said so far they might then say well but i don't want open ai using my data or training on my data or whatever and so i mean you still have to trust that they're telling the truth of course but they basically lead their announcement with just as a reminder we don't use any of that data you know for any purpose it doesn't train our models or anybody else's models you know your data your data whatever um and now let's get into the you know the features. So I think they are very uh, aware that people want to you know not be co mingling their data with other people's data, and they're 
you know, the policies have been updated to reflect that. And presumably they're following those internally and they're definitely really emphasizing it. The illicit use case remains one, right? I mean, that's the, if you're, if you're trying to do something that OpenAI doesn't want you to do, they do have moderation in place on this. They're using a GPT-4 powered moderation tool to look through the data and try to identify, are you, you know, training a spear phishing bot or whatever. And that is an area that I'm really going to be watching for because I kind of doubt it's going to work, or at least I think it's going to be pretty easy for people to get around. Hey, we'll continue our interview in a moment after a word from our sponsors. Most of these classifiers work pretty well on a naive use case, meaning like if you just set up a data set of, you know, super egregious behavior and try to run it through, it'll probably catch that. But I think you can, you know, I think you can be clever. I think you can kind of disguise what you're doing. You know, you can, and they, interestingly too, they, they said this time that they encourage you to use instructions. So, you know, again, going back to that earlier comment where previous fine tuning was on a model that didn't have the instruction training. Well, now you do. So in the past, they used to say, no need to include instructions. It's just show us a bunch of examples and that's that. Now you can kind of benefit from the instruction and show the examples at the same time. So they encourage that, that inclusion of instructions. And that also probably is something that they would like to see you include because it might help them understand what task it is you're trying to do and kind of moderate your tasks more effectively, right? If you are to you know, if you wanted to train like a, a spear phishing bot or whatever, it would be maybe hard to do that with like pure examples. Certainly you'd need like quite a few examples to just get across to the, you know, the model that like, this is what we're trying to do here. Um, especially if it was subtle in the conversation, if you wanted to do that much faster, you could include the instructions, but then those instructions telling the model what to do would likely set off their moderation filters. But I still kind of think that, you know, either just by using a lot of examples, you know, and not using any instructions or just otherwise kind of being clever and like hiding the true intent that my guess is people will find it not super hard to get around those controls right now. But again, it's like, you know, from a safety standpoint, I think OpenAI is not just, you know, what's their loss function, so to speak, right? They're not just minimizing the harm done through their own platform at this point. And that is, again, part of the effect of, of probably a llama too. I think they are really taking this kind of stuff super seriously. They don't want to see people do harmful fine tunings on their platform. But when there is now a true open source, ungovernable alternative, now they don't really have to worry about that quite as much, right? Because it's like, yeah, somebody might sneak some stuff through our filter, but you know, they can also just go do llama now for many things. And therefore, like we kind of don't have to worry about it as much. We'll try, you know, obviously we'll catch what we can. We can, you know, put the best policies in, in place that we can, but you know, our incremental, we're not like unlocking something that people can't do qualitatively given that this is out there, you know, all those conveniences or whatever, you know, that's nice for the scammers to have too, but that's maybe not the key, uh, you know, question or criteria that they'll be making their decisions on. That'll definitely be very interesting to watch. Yeah. And that's why they're also, you know, in terms of why 3.5 before four, probably multiple reasons, but 
I think the safety one is a big reason, keeping in mind that they had GPT-4 done training for three months before they launched ChatGPT. They definitely kind of take this approach of like, we want to have, well, not sure this is like exactly how they think about it, but even if they have a next generation model and product ready to go, and clearly we know that like people are fine tuning GPT-4, right? Like starting with Bing and, you know, plenty of others, Cursor, the GPT-4 native coding environment that's been blowing up recently. They had early access to, to GPT-4 as well. I guess I don't know if they're fine tuning for sure, but there are, you know, organizations that are doing this GPT-4 fine tuning. You know, they're developing that product. That product is probably mostly ready to go. And they're releasing this one first. Maybe there's still some, you know, issues to be worked out or some scalability or they need more GPUs or whatever. Uh, but probably also part of it is, let's see what people do here. Let's give these filters a chance to work. Um, you know, people do have a roughly speaking a GPT 3.5 equivalent in Llama that they can go use. So we're not really, from a harmful use case standpoint, we're not really unlocking anything super major here. But if we if we did jump straight to GPT-4 fine-tuning, then we might be. So let's like kind of take this step and see how everything settles and, you know, try to catch any flagrant shit before we roll out the next version. Yeah. Are, are there other questions that you're having on your mind here that we haven't yet discussed or things that you'll be looking to watch out for um, that will be determinant of something or do you think uh, worth noting? Yeah, I mean, the big thing to, to keep in mind is just like, we got to use it, right? Exactly how good is it? What are the, you know, the best practices? I thought their release was very clean. Um, they also introduced a completions, new completions fine-tunable model, which is, I mean, this is really inside baseball, but for the app developers, there is a little bit of friction between the old version, which was just input-output, you know, kind of formatted in the classic autocomplete, whatever you put in, it just kind of continues that. The new APIs, the GPT-4, you know, these are chat modalities. So everything is structured as message. You, it's like, you know, the human message and the assistant message, and you can kind of set up, you know, even a back and forth to begin your interaction if you want to, or you can continue one that's already happening. And that's like the thing they're really trying to push folks toward. But I was interested to see also that the completions version, which for us, you know, having used their earlier fine-tuned models, that's a drop-in replacement. I don't even have to reformat my data. I don't have to convert everything to chat. I can just literally take the exact same input-output pairs that I've been using and use it on this new version. That's probably the biggest thing that's like not super clear because that's not exactly 3.5 Turbo. It's They call it DaVinci 002, and it's not super well-specified what that is, and that model hasn't got like a ton of attention. But basically, I think it's probably equivalent to 3.5 it, it should work fine but that's something that i will personally be looking at over the, the next week or so as we see hey maybe we can you know save 90 percent cost it'll probably be faster as well you know that may open up additional use cases for us where we might you know generate two at the same time or whatever so but I, that that is kind of one little wrinkle notably that also was not marked as they've been pushing this like chat stuff pretty hard but that DaVinci 002 completion style was marked as legacy in their presentation, not as deprecated, suggesting that like they do intend to support it for the foreseeable future, even though they, you know, encourage you to, to use the chat um, version, especially if you're just starting out. 
but there are a lot of folks, you know, who have been customers of the former versions that now they can just like seamlessly upgrade and then they can kind of, you know, roll over to a chat modality at their convenience. Another topic that I do think has been kind of going around lately that's a little weird that might be worth addressing is the chat GPT's traffic numbers are in decline. You know, this, this whole thing isn't really panning out. I just saw an article today where it was like, you know, scamming, spamming and shamming or whatever is all AI is proven to be good for. And I mean, I, I guess if people are listening to this show, they're probably not buying that narrative. But I looked into that article and it's like no mention of code, no mention of education, no mention of medicine. I mean, good God, like <laughs> there's a there's a lot going on beyond the scamming. And I'm, you know, someone who is concerned about the scamming. But you know, the traffic numbers being down, I think, are also probably a bit of a red herring. Products are being rolled out everywhere, you know, where the language model integration is kind of coming with you. So it's not shocking to me that people might be going to ChatGPT a little less. I would say I probably also go to it a little less than I did when it was new because now I'm also going to perplexity and I'm also going to Claude and, you know, the code models that are built into my native development environment have gotten better. And, you know, in some contexts I'm using like an, a tool that is, you know, officially speaking an API tool, even though it's just kind of a thin wrapper that I'm using to like organize templates or collect usage data, you know, like at Athena, we have this, we use human loop from another former guest, and everybody can access GPT-4 through our company level account. So we don't have to buy chat GPT, you know, products, uh, accounts for every single person. So just paying for usage, you know, saves a lot of money. So a lot of that stuff has kind of matured where organizations are like, I could access this this way for 20 bucks a month per person, or I could access it over here for just whatever tokens we're going to use. And, you know, that's a lot cheaper. So maybe we'll do that. And there's other upsides, you know, as well that those kind of, auxiliary products bring. So I don't think that if you were to look, you know, they don't publish it, but if you were to look at the tokens served graph, I would be very confident that it continues to grow at a very healthy pace across all the leaders. And I just think people are, you know, very eager for sort of a counter narrative in some of these cases. There would, Another good data point on this, Dario from Anthropic, uh, CEO of Anthropic, did um, he keeps a pretty low profile. I think he's starting to change that now as uh, you, know, you can only meet with so many heads of state before you kind of have to do some some media as well. But so he recently just did a you know first big interview in a while. And there were a few things in that interview that definitely caught my attention. Not necessarily even they were surprising, but he said about their usage that it's basically exponential. And he's like, you know, we don't even really try that hard to commercialize. You know, obviously we're, we're kind of moving that direction, but it's like, hasn't been our focus. And yet the number just keeps going up. And he's like, you know, people are just, they're, they're still kind of just figuring out what to do with it, but we're not even really trying, you know, and then and the number just keeps going up. So then he also goes on to say, you know, I can only imagine what that looks like at organizations where that is the primary focus. And, you know, so it sounds like he's also pretty confident that the uh, open AI number continues to go up and up. You know, just this morning, I was doing 
I'm uh, participating in a charity evaluation process. And a lot of the charities, you know, organizations are related to AI safety in some way, shape or form. That's why I'm involved. That's, you know, what the funder is really interested in. And, you know, you get into some pretty technical stuff sometimes, like we're doing this mechanistic interpretability research. Here's our last three papers. Here's our GitHub library where we're, you know, sharing our work. Okay, cool. Well, now, you know, I got to assess that. <laughs> so I got to understand it first and I can get on the phone with them. Uh, but I end up preparing quite similarly to how I'm, how I prepare for a you know podcast episode where I really read the work <laughs> in detail, try to figure out, you know, how does it, how does it actually function in a technical sense? And GPT-4 is awesome for that. You know, just bringing in notation, copying method sections, asking it. I've started asking it to explain sections of papers to me like I'm a, I think I said like new grad student this morning. And, you know, you, know, you could ask for it to be explained like you're five as well. Um, that might be a little too simple. But the idea that it's, you know, that it's not... Um, finding use cases to me is just kind of farcical. I think we've got, you know, work to do to figure out how best to use it in our individual lives. But the ability to get tutored on a machine learning paper on demand, I mean, for me, that's just absolutely huge value, right? I mean, and I get it for cents, you know, it's like pennies. Uh, the, the relative cost here is it's your kind of classic 10,000 X, right? It, it, it would literally be if I, if I needed to go find an expert and I was going to pay some sort of market ish rate ad hoc AI consulting, you know, is easily into the couple hundred dollars an hour plus. And you know, what I get for two to five cents, you know, is easily would be 200 plus dollars to go get, you know, somebody to kind of explain concepts to me if I, if I wanted to go hire a grad student or, you know, whatever PhD to do that. Hard to beat that, you know, hard to beat that ratio of savings. That's for sure. You mentioned code education and healthcare. Why don't you give uh, one or two use cases for each of the things that you're most uh, excited about or seem the most promising uh, in the, in the somewhat near term. And we've had a number of guests on and had long form. But why don't you kind of summarize? Yeah, we need to do more with code actually. Maybe that's, you know, so much of my guest uh, selection is based on my personal curiosity and just the things that I see that I really want to learn more about. So if there's a reason that we've done less on the show with code, it's probably because that's what I have done the most with on a day in and day out basis. You know, I guess Replit definitely still counts there, although that's like a even, you know, grander vision than just kind of today's coding use cases. But, you know, it's, it's a good, GPT-4 is a very good coder. It's able to follow directions extremely well. Amjad has noted and uh, Michaela noted in the interview that they've had product managers win hackathon competitions because what the product managers are really good at is specifying exactly what they want. And the models are pretty good at following those instructions and converting them to, you know, working code. And so if you are really good about your instructions, you can get pretty good code back in most cases, transforming code from one use case to another. Uh, I've done a little bit of like coding by analogy 
that's pretty interesting where you kind of say, okay, here's some working code that I either found online or I have from a previous project, project or whatever. Here's what it does. Now I want to make a, you know, want it, you to make a different version that does X a bit differently. That can really help because, especially with GPT-4, you know, if you're using it raw without the benefit of connecting it to the internet or whatever, a lot of the things you might be using, you know, are potentially new since GPT-4's training cutoff date or are updated since then. And so, you know, exactly how is that API call made or, you know, exactly how is that library used today? It may not have great command of, but it does a great job of using the example. And so the formula is like, here's a working example. Here's what it does. Here's what I want to do that's different use that working example for inspiration. And that is a super effective uh, approach for me. I think that's only going to, you know, with things like Cursor and Replit, you know, launching these kind of true kind of pair programmer-like experiences where they can even set up file structures, set up configuration, set up a whole environment, do like hierarchical type work you know, where, okay, now having set up all those <laughs> files, now go right into each file. I mean, you can get pretty far on a lot of projects with uh, GPT-4 coding assistance. It is a bit of a skill in and of itself. You know, it, it's not the kind of thing that is like killer on first use, but it doesn't take long, honestly, to get to pretty high value use in code. And then you can also debug. I mean, I think it's fascinating in general with these language models, the more expertise you can bring, the more value it can in turn give you back. So if you're a real newbie and you're trying to learn to code, you know, then it can, it can happen pretty easily where you can kind of go off the rails and get confused. And now once you're confused and it's kind of also confused and then everything can kind of spiral off into confusion. So some of what I've been trying to teach the executive assistants is kind of, how not to let that happen to them. Um, but if you're pretty savvy, then you have a pretty good sense of what to bring it. And it, you know, will reward typically a, a well-structured query with a usually a pretty good response. So it can be really good with debugging. Andre Karpathy from OpenAI has recently, it's been a couple of weeks, but was doing some stuff in C where he was just trying to see how with just the simplest code, right? Simplest possible, lowest level, cleanest, most efficient code. How hard is it to run inference with a model on a CPU? Obviously, everybody's been talking about the GPU shortage, but the CPU can do any computation that you want it to do. And that does include all the matrix multiplication of a, you know, of a model forward pass. So, you know, it's not optimized for that, but it is super optimized in general. How much can you push that to, you know, work just with a CPU resource? And he was finding great success with it between a, a kind of a mix in that case of, you know, first of all, he's super sharp, knows what he's talking about, has like very deep command of the concepts. So he can say with high specificity what he wants. But as he noted, pretty rusty coding in C, you know, which is a, which is a pretty gnarly language where it's like easy to make mistakes and you could have, you know, memory leaks. And I'm not an expert in that by any means, but you know, it's low level stuff where the details really matter and it's, it is easy to make mistakes. So with the help of GPT-4 helping him 
code in C, which he hadn't really done, you know, it was felt rusty on. Now he's just kind of breezing through it. He's able to focus at the conceptual level of what he really wants and thinks matters. And it's driving, you know, all the low level stuff. And then bringing that on top of that to Twitter and, you know, just sharing it with the community. Then all of a sudden people are like, what if you change this little thing? What if you change this little thing? And he's actually getting to the point where kind of mid-size, you know, your sort of 7B type models are running on a CPU at a decent clip, which is a pretty big deal. Like people aren't generally going to want to do that on their laptop because, you know, you're you're really using your CPU um, to do that generation. So it's, you know, it, it's going to be resource intensive still. But the fact that you can do that at all, I mean, there's certainly an, you know, unbelievable amount of just CPU resource sitting out there. And if those can now run, you know, a 7B model at a acceptable pace for many use cases, I mean, that's huge. And again, this is like a leading thinker in the space who is just greatly accelerated by the ability to, you know, have GPT-4 like write most of the code. I think that stuff only, um, you know, only intensifies the, you know, he he's kind of the, uh, you know, 10 to 100x developer just on his own. And then you add on another, you know, 10 to 100x, um, yeah, that's maybe a little hyperbolic, but, you know, you can start to see your way to the 10,000x developer that, um, that Amjad, you know, alludes to. So that's code. Education, I think the Khan Academy episode is really good, you know, with, with Sean. I think there it's really just the scalability more than anything else. You know, we're ironing out all these kind of rough spots and it definitely can, you know, if, if you're looking at like AP physics level questions where, you know, you kind of have to tease apart exactly how does this work and what's the relationship between things. It's not always perfect at that yet. Certainly as you go higher level than there, it can sometimes struggle, but, you know, through elementary and, and most of high school, it's got pretty good command. They've figured out how to make sure it stays on task with you. And, you know, they've got some increasingly good checks for like, is it getting confused? Are we going off the rails here? In using that, you know, it basically seemed like a similar experience to just ChatGPT normal edition, but instead of just telling you the answers, it takes a much more Socratic approach and, you know, tries to lead you to the answers and coach you and, you know, uh, tries to make things relevant for you. But I think that just the just the scalability, right? It's like the, you know, same thing as I was just talking about my own education, trying to read these papers in areas that I'm not super familiar with. The ratio of teacher to student, you know, is now basically one to one. And that has never really been possible, right? I mean, that, that is, I think it's it's kind of as simple as that. I, they're I don't think they're doing all that much. And this could come, you know, over time. I think one one possible promise of AI in education would be more systematic experimentation, more ability to really isolate techniques that work. That's, I think, super hard to do in general when you have kind of all the layers of like, okay, we're going to teach this to the teachers and then they're going to do it. And then we're eventually going to have, you know, a month later, we're going to have a standardized test or whatever. You know, but did they really do it? And, you know, was the kid there that day? I mean, it's just so much noise. Bringing those experiments down one to two orders of magnitude and just looking at like, 
you know, okay, let's say we take this tact or that tact on this kind of question, you know, super narrow, which one works better? I think that kind of A-B testing probably does work and is just not, at least in the beginning, you know, I mean, everything, you might have low-hanging fruit that could get depleted before too long, but I would suspect that there is still probably quite a bit of low-hanging fruit in terms of how do we explain this concept? You know, what's the best way to explain fractions to a fourth grader? Do we really know that? I don't think we really know that. And what's the second best way? You know, and is it, are there correlations that we might detect between the way that they learned the previous thing and the way that they're most likely to learn this thing? That's definitely, you know, not happening, happening systematically today. You have certainly teachers, of course, that are trying to understand how kids learn and trying to cater to that to the best of their abilities. But it seems like where we are now is we're kind of getting this massive benefit of scale where just you have immediate direct access to the tuner and that's, you know, potentially a game changer, almost certainly a game changer in and of itself. But can the tutoring actually get better as people really drill into these like specific skills and figure out how best to teach them and, you know, maybe make some actual sense of learning styles in a way where it can be delivered, you know, just the way it's going to be most helpful for you as opposed to a lot of learning styles in a classroom and kind of pay lip service to it. But what can you really do about that? I would bet that that is going to be pretty powerful. I guess we'll see, you know, the, the, the question, there's certainly a whole new class of experiments and a whole new kind of clarity of data that you can capture relative to previous regimes. So, you know, I guess we'll see if we have any, um, any theories that actually prove out on that data, but you know, I'd be pretty surprised if that data doesn't unlock something. And then let's see medicine. I mean, boy, I mean, the, the multimodal med palm is kind of the latest thing on my mind, certainly there, you know, the promise of that is, this is what I said in the intro to that episode. The promise of that is no less than the AI doctor on demand in your pocket you know, 24 seven pennies on the dollar. Now with the ability to understand images as well, you know, take a picture of that thing on your skin or, you know, even get that x-ray that you got at the clinic that's now in your medical record and, you know, go take it to the thing for a second opinion. I feel like that's getting really close. You know, that at Google, they're obviously going to be somewhat conservative and careful as they should be about, not overpromising and, you know, not, um, you know, they're not going to take an Elon approach and just go deploy first and ask questions later. But it does seem to me like they have to be getting really close to the point where it would be beneficial to health outcomes to have the thing, you know, just, and, and that was kind of what I was interested in, seeing where they were going to go with this next. It sounds like there's maybe a, another generation or two before they're going to get real serious about it. But I was just kind of like, you know, at what point do you, do you just say, okay, we've benchmarked this thing every which way. Now let's just go take a patient population, give it to some of them and come back in a while and see what happens. You know, and I would bet that it would be beneficial. And you could measure beneficial in a lot of ways. Are people going to like all of a sudden be living longer? 
I doubt that there'd be a very strong signal in that respect just yet. You know, maybe some things I can certainly, it's a definite hassle to go do this kind of diagnostic stuff. We just had an, it was a thing where our baby, uh, baby Charlie, who's four months old now, has a little dimple on his sacrum, which is like, you know, it's, it's nothing. People can look it up, but it's, it's this little kind of thing where at the very base of the spine, the like skin hasn't totally, totally closed the way it, it should. And apparently this is like quite common. See it all the time. Pediatricians like, you know, you got to go get an ultrasound for this because there's like a one in a bazillion, I don't know, whatever one in some large number chance that it could be a really serious bad thing, but it's almost for sure not a bad thing. And you know, we eventually dragged ourselves to some hospital across town on a Saturday to get this thing done. And sure enough, okay, he's fine. I wouldn't be shocked if there is some benefit there now, just in terms of helping people understand when they really need to go seek care versus when they can just ignore stuff. And that could maybe lead to, you know, somewhat moved needle in terms of like, you know, the most important health outcomes. But I would expect that to be pretty minor for the short term. Nevertheless, you know, when people get this is kind of in the case in, in, in instances where they've like tested Medicaid as well. You know, it's a lot of times not exactly that you are objectively, quote unquote, healthier, at least on a short time horizon. But people still report being like overall much better off. You know, they're financially better off because they're you know able to get care and decide when to get care effectively. I mean, in Medicaid, you know, it's being paid for versus not paid for here. It might just be like, you can use your budget or your available resources more effectively. So if you don't have to waste time and money going and doing something, then that could be great. You know, just, just saving the time and money. Peace of mind, you know, is another one. I think Medicaid people traditionally find or typically find like people just report having better peace of mind, better mental health, you know, better outlook, more, more kind of comfort in knowing that they're kind of taken care of. I can imagine that also could be uh, apparent in a, you know, a MedPalm M trial. So it does seem like we're, we're quite close to that. It'll be really interesting to see so far. I think the medical establishment has been really positively receptive to this kind of stuff, uh, you know, appropriate discretion and sort of, you know, not rushing, but also not hostile to using AI to improve the overall system. I've been, I've been honestly quite impressed. You know, I, I was probably a little bit more cynical in the past and would have expected more just like outright resistance out of pure self-interest. And I've been pretty pleasantly surprised that not much of that seems to have happened. So maybe it'll start as it's like, oh shit, because by the way, MedPalm M radiology reports are preferred 40% of the time to the human radiologist. So it's still losing, but it's not losing by much. And especially if it, you know, were to cost one ten thousandth, you know, you might, uh, you might in fact, and, and by the way, there's probably also like additional prompt techniques there. I'm, I'm guessing, you know, there may be, there may be issues where, or just simple techniques where you might even be able to get that to parrot if you really tried. But in any event, you know, would you take something that's preferred 40% of the time if it costs one ten thousandth? Uh, yeah, probably, you know, in a lot of cases you would. So do the radiologists like 
start to unionize around this in the near future? Or, you know, do they just kind of continue to say, hey, this is great. Um, we're overburdened. I think that'll be very interesting to find out. And I think the other thing that'll be interesting to find out is, much like with the self-driving cars, what standard do we ultimately want to, to set before we can actually adopt a system like this. It seems pretty clear at this point that the self-driving cars are like roughly as safe as humans. That doesn't seem to be enough for adoption for some reason. It seems like we're maybe more headed for a world where it needs to be 10, you know, an order of magnitude safer, like a 90% risk reduction before people will actually want to adopt it. Is that the, you know, is the same standard going to prevail in medicine. I suspect that the standard for self-driving cars is going to be a little higher just because when that fails, it can fail spectacularly and you're, you know, you're like in an accident and that's a big problem. Whereas, you know, with the medical interaction, you know, it's not doing surgery on you, right? It's advising you at most at this point. So you have much more of a buffer to like double check things, you know, that don't make sense or, you know, weave that into existing structures in a way that's not so either or as kind of self-driving or not. But it definitely will be interesting to see where that bar gets set. And if, you know, protectionism pops up, but the march of progress from those guys is just incredible. Every couple months, you know, to, to add on just like a massive leap in performance or a massive addition of capabilities it's like at the current pace, it's really hard to imagine that it's more than two years away before they're kind of done-ish. You know, the work is never done in some sense. You can always go make them superhuman. You can teach them to like read genetic information in a way that humans can't and don't. But it does seem like just a methodical kind of continued disciplined, adding use cases, adding data types, you know, fixing certain things that were like, obviously not great. You know, the, the low hanging fruit that they cited in that episode, some of it just around like the bottlenecks that they put images through, you know, the low resolution at which I think it's 256 by 256 that the model sees the image just due to kind of prior structure and like not wanting to rework that at the time of doing the project kind of also because they sort of know that like, this is not the final form anyway. So we're not, they're not even trying to max out. They're just kind of trying to prove, you know, various theories. It seems like it's going to be pretty damn far in the not too, too distant future. So, you know, time to start that conversation, right? Or what's that clinical trial look like? What's the standard? They kind of said regulation isn't exactly blocking. It was an interesting answer because I said, is regulation blocking you? Like, do you feel like there's a law saying you can't do this or is it more of, you know, you want a law that you can be definitely following before you would want to do something like this? And they're like, well, we have kind of probably a couple of generations to go anyway. And so, you know, they're just focused on, hey, we just we're going to keep making this thing better. But, you know, meanwhile, that question is becoming pretty live, I think. Maybe that's a good place to good place to, to wrap as fascinating uh, overview. And uh, yeah, always a pleasure. Until next time. Nathan. Appreciate it, Eric. Talk soon. It is both energizing and enlightening to hear why people listen and learn what they value about the show. So please don't hesitate to reach out via email at tcr at turpentine.co, or you can DM me on the social media platform of your choice.